that the three angels are about to blow. And the fifth angel then blew his trumpet. And I saw a star fall from heaven to earth, and he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and the shaft rose smoke, and from the shaft rose smoke like the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, and their hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. And they had breastplates like breastplates of iron, and the noise of the rings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and sting like scorpions, and their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit, and his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek his name is Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. Then the sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, that day, month, and the year, they were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number, and this is how I saw the horses in my vision and those who rode them. They wore breastplates like the color of fire and of sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads, and fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed, by the fire and smoke and sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with heads, and by means of them they wound. This last two verses. The rest of mankind, who were not killed by these plagues, did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and idols of gold and silver and bronze, stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk. Nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray. Father in heaven, We need your, your help today in order to understand what is strange and in some ways, at least at first, appalling. And we feel a sense of revulsion in our, in our stomachs around some of what we've just read and, and even some else of what we will explore today. And so, Father, I, I'm praying that, that your Holy Spirit would teach us something from these chapters that we need today 
God, don't let the, the imagery and the, 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 the seeming craziness of it really distract us from what you want to tell us today and what you want to convict us of or comfort us in. And so God, to do that, we, we need your Holy Spirit. We believe that, I know I do, that, that, that my words are not sufficient for the task at hand today. We need your spirit to come and minister to us. And so we pray that you would do that. And that as we explore this text, you would give us in our spirits a deep revulsion towards sin and its consequences and a deep, renewed sense of comfort in the grace of Jesus Christ. And so, Father, would you unite your power with my weak words and be our helper today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, quite the scripture reading, right? Told you, yeah. Walking in the streets of Seattle, we, we see quite a bit going on, right? I remember whenever I, I first moved here, that was one of the things that I really had to get used to, is that living in a major city, and something not exclusive to Seattle, but any major city, is that you see a lot out on the streets. You see a lot of brokenness, you see a lot of hurt, you see a lot of dysfunction. And I really had to, to get used to that. And, and I remember uh, one of my, actually my second week living here in Seattle, I remember I was driving my car to what was in the church office and I parked and uh, I, I saw an older woman uh, walking by clearly with a, a needle in her hand. And uh, I parked my car uh, and was about to head out to go into the office. And I noticed that she went into this porta potty with the needle in hand. And as I got out of my car, I could hear the woman yelling within the porta potty. And I listened in to try to see if she was in need of help, and I soon discovered that what she was yelling about was actually yelling at someone on the other end of a phone call. And from what she was saying, it was clear that whoever was on the other side of that phone call was someone who loved her deeply and was pleading with her to make a little bit of change in her life. And this woman was pushing back and back and back. It's my own life. I can do whatever I want. Leave me alone. You don't really love me. And that was my second week here. And I just felt such a sense of sorrow and pain for the things that we see out in our streets. And now, honestly, living here now for a couple of years, it's things like that, admittedly as a confession, I've grown somewhat used to. That's kind of the danger of living in a major city is that you see things that you begin to get numb to. You begin to have a sense of apathy. Social psychologists actually for decades now have begun to study that reality and, and have named a phenomenon called bystander apathy. Uh, bystander ha- apathy is what happens whenever a person, usually within a group, witnesses a crime or witnesses someone who is in crisis and just has a sense of apathy towards what's going on. They're, probably because they're in a group and they're thinking that someone else will fix it, someone else will step in. They just have a sense of apathy. I'm, I'm not going to intervene. I'm not going to do anything. And this has been going on for a long time. They've been studying it for decades. And the most famous instance of bystander apathy was probably back in 1964, when a woman by the name of Kitty Genovese, who was a bartender in New York City, uh, was tragically murdered in an alley just outside of her apartment as she was walking home from work. And, and the initial reports showed that there were, you know, although the, the number of people was overinflated, there were at least a dozen people who could hear Kitty Genovese's cries for help. She was crying for help and, and no one did anything. No one even notified the police. Or we saw this even last year. As we saw in the news headlines, if you remember, that there was a woman who was sexually assaulted on a public train 
And nobody did anything. Nobody stepped in. Nobody called the police. It's shocking. We, we find that so strange that how could you not step in? How, how could you witness a crisis? How could you witness an assault and not step in to do something? Bystander apathy. Well, friends, I have good news for you today that's going to take a little bit of work to help you understand it as good news. But the good news is this. God does not suffer from bystander apathy. God does not suffer from bystander apathy. He intervenes. Now, even that statement, whether you recognize it or not, is quite contrary to what the, the modern conception of God is like. If you were to go out into the streets right now and find someone who had a, a measure of belief in God, you would probably ask them to describe that God. And, and what would come back is just a, a general supernatural being up in the sky who maybe created everything, but is mostly uninvolved in daily life today. The, the modern intuition around who God is basically makes him out to be this person who is eternally permissible, right? Perpetually relaxed and deeply committed to never involving himself in your life, except for those few moments where you need him to be a therapeutic balm, right? The modern conception of God and what he is like really comes out to look like bystander apathy, <laughs> That God is just simply looking on. He, he, he sees the things that are going on in the world and he just doesn't seem to care. He doesn't seem to intervene. But what we're going to see today is that that modern conception of who God is is deeply contradictory to the God of the Bible that we see. The God of the Bible does not suffer from bystander apathy. The God of the Bible sees what's going on in the world and he intervenes. God will step up, God will interrupt, and God will intervene. Now, the, the specific form of intervention that we're going to see today is in the form of warning. There are many ways that God intervenes and acts in the world, and the one that we're going to really explore today is God's intervention of warning, okay? That's what we're going to look at. And in order to understand how God's intervention is, is shown in these chapters as, as warning, we've, we've got some work to do. So let's... Uh, let, let's see what's going on. Let's, let's explain a little bit of where we're headed in, these, in this text. And in order to understand where we're headed, uh, we've got to have a, a very simple reality in mind when it comes to the book of Revelation. And that simple reality is this, that the letter of Revelation has a very specific end in mind. I, I've said this before, but, but the book of Revelation is, is not just a random smattering of crazy imagery it's not the psychedelic trip of a dehydrated Apostle John. No, it is a letter written to specific churches in Asia Minor in 96 AD. And it is written in order to peel back the curtain on reality for these Christians and for us to see the true state of the present, of what's actually going on in the world and the true nature of the future. Now, again, if you are by any measure familiar with the book of Revelation, you know that the idea of the future is a pretty big thing, right? The book ends in a paradise promised to those who have trusted in Jesus Christ. 
But we've got to understand that the story progresses that way. It's not just all this crazy imagery and then all of a sudden God solves everything and brings in the paradise of his presence. No, in order to bring paradise to, from heaven down to earth, there are certain steps, there are certain things that God is doing throughout this letter before he inaugurates that paradise in his presence. And one of those steps, one of those things that God will do before he brings paradise in his presence is what we see here throughout these chapters, which is this, warn those who continue to rebel against him of what will come. Revelation chapters eight through 11 is the step in the story in which God wants to make sure that anyone who will hear will have the warning of what comes in life lived, life lived apart from him, of what continued rebellion looks like. That's what God, that's what's going on here. God is seeking to, in many ways, shoot off some very strong and frightening warning shots so that those human beings and us are awakened to the horrors of sin, to wake up and turn back to God through trusting in Jesus Christ. Before God brings paradise in his presence, he shows throughout this the dystopia and the, the, the destruction that sin's penalty brings and desires for everyone to hear that warning and turn toward Jesus, to not to hear this warning and to wake up, to not hit the snooze button on the warning of God. That's a problem for me. I hit the snooze all the time. Actually, this morning, this is random, but this morning I found out that I accidentally called 911 two times this morning <laughs> and trying to snooze my alarm. It's hard because it's like, you, you, you know the iPhone, you click three times, it calls 911, but also when you click it, it turns off the alarm. So I have two voicemails on my phone saying, are you all right? <laughs> Let's bring it back. <laughs> God is seeking to, to warn anyone who will hear what life is like lived in continued rebellion against him and where that life eventually ends up. So in order to, to understand that a little bit more clearly, let's, let's do a quick flyover of what, of, of what has happened in this chapter and in 8 through 11. So, so last week, there were seven seals that we covered that, that were broken in order to open what was, what was identified as the scroll of God's purposes and plans. And that was meant to represent the, the coming of the kingdom of God. As Jesus in the text continues to break those seals, God's kingdom is coming on earth. And, and everything that happened after those seals was a reaction of evil meant to slow down the advance of God's reign and rule. So a lot of craziness happened and it was all an effort of evil in order to push back or to slow down the inevitable kingdom of God. And this week, there are seven trumpets that are being blown. That's the imagery that we find. Now we, with that language, we already can have an idea of what is meant to be portrayed, right? For us, trumpets are used in orchestras and jazz sets, but, but in this day, trumpets were mainly for the use of notification to notify you of something going on. You blew a trumpet if you wanted to get people's attention on some specific matter. And the notification here of chapters eight through 11 of all these seven trumpets that are being blown, the notification here is of God's judgment. That God's judgment 
is coming down the pike. So be warned. But the full judgment of God against sin is yet to come. We'll see that as we get later in the book to the seven bowls, even more crazy. What we see here is actually just a, a, a warning, okay? So let's go through, and if you have your Bible open, you can look at this as I, as I run through this, because I don't want to get too stuck on the imagery, but I do want to help you feel what's going on. So, so in order to warn, there's these angels that are blowing these trumpets, and, and the first angel blows his trumpet, and with that comes hail and, and fire mixed with blood, and a third of the earth was burned up. It's important what I just said. A third of the earth was burned up. The second angel, right after that, comes onto the scene and blows his trumpet, and a great comet was thrown into the sea, and the sea became blood. Because of that, a third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. Come in the next angel, he blows his trumpet, and another comet falls down from the sky, this time hitting the rivers and the springs of water. The fresh water sources became bitter and undrinkable, again, a third of them. The fourth angel blows his trumpet, and a third of the luminaries in the sky go black. A third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars fall out so that there is no longer enough light to live normally on the earth. In these first four trumpets, God disrupts the reliability of nature in order to catch the attention of those who are far from him. And in fact, the activity that happens after each one of these first four trumpets is similar in many ways to the plagues that God sent on Egypt as a warning to Pharaoh to let his people go, right? If you remember back, if you know about it in Exodus, when God is telling Pharaoh to let his people go, he uses Moses in order to bring these great plagues on the earth. And they aren't really quite the judgment on Pharaoh. It's more of like a, hey, you need to listen to what I'm saying. I can do this. And that's, that's similar to what's happening here. Nature becomes unreliable, at least a third of it. A portion of the basic necessities of life, like water and crops and even daylight, are taken away in order to wake people up. <laughs> but things get far, far worse. We can handle the unreliability of nature maybe a little bit. But as we saw in our scripture reading, things get worse. We picked up at, at trumpet number five, right? And the fifth angel blows his trumpet and a figure who is most likely Satan unleashes a demonic swarm of warriors whose appearance is as haunting as their work is tormenting. They are unleashed in order to bring great pain to those on the earth who do not have the seal of God, meaning those who don't have the Holy Spirit, those who are not believers in Jesus Christ. And the text says specifically for five months, again, limited, this demonic army is allowed to work and they are so accomplished at the work that those who are affected dream for death to come and to end their misery, but death does not come. And the sixth angel blows his trumpet, and another great demonic army comes. This army numbers, if you do the math, 200 million, and their work doesn't torment, but actually kills. From their mouths comes smoke and sulfur, and it pollutes the air enough that another third of mankind is killed. 
All of this, I'm just gonna give you the explanation, okay? I'm not gonna make you wait for it. All of this is God warning those who are in sin to turn around and come to Jesus. That's why we ended right there on verse 20 and 21 in chapter nine. Although the rest of mankind did not repent, it shows that that was the intended purpose. That these, these trumpets that had been blown and the crisis that had been brought, the intended purpose was the repentance of those who have not turned to Jesus Christ. A warning on judgment. Again, this is not the full judgment of God. This is why the language of a third always comes up. Remember, the numbers in Revelation are symbols, not statistics. This one-third number that comes through on all of these is, is meant to show that the majority of people on the earth at that time are actually not experiencing this horror show, but are actually just meant to see it and repent. Not full judgment, but a very strong warning of what's coming. A very strong warning. These images are graphic and frightening to which the Apostle John would say, exactly, it's meant to be that. These images are meant to reach us at a deep level in order for us to feel the urgency we should feel around the repentance of sin. Remember, the, 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 the imagery throughout this book, I've talked about this quote from Daryl Johnson so much, but imagery goes beyond the intellect through the emotions, into the imagination, reaching at us at the deepest recesses of our being. That's what's trying to happen right now. The imagery of destruction and plague and unreliability of nature, all of this imagery here wants to grab you at the deepest recesses of your being to help you see this is where sin goes. Sin Left, to, left unrepented of, ends in a very terrifying state of judgment. We should read this and have a sense of, ugh, I don't like that. that. I don't like preaching through this text. That was my original reaction when I was preparing this week. But that's the intended purpose. We're meant to be like, whoa, that's a lot. Because sin is worse than we often think it is. The judgment, or the, at least the, the, the warnings of judgment that go on here, are meant to wake us up around what sin really is, friends. And I would understand that at this point, there rises in our mind that natural and understandable question, why is God so worked up about this. Like I said, we have, we have such a low view of sin. In our mind, sins are oopsies, right? We even hear that in our language. Oh, I fell. No, you didn't, you jumped. We have such a low view of what sin is. Why is God so concerned about this? Why is God so concerned about sin and therefore so committed to warning us away from it through repentance. God is willing to vandalize his own good world through plagues in order to wake us up. 
God is willing to allow demonic forces to torment in order to wake us up. That should clue us into one of two realities. Either God is crazy and prude and just needs to get over it. Take a Xanax, God. Or sin is as horrific as this deserves. And as a pastor, I'm prone to believe the latter. That God is not just a a pent-up prude who needs to learn some tolerance skills and breathing exercises in order to calm down. That this is not all an overreaction. But rather, the, the terror of these warnings corresponds with the horrific nature of sin. God is right. If sin is as horrific as the Bible lays it out, God is right to warn us away from such evil. Why? Why Why is sin so horrific? Let me give you three reasons. First, sin is horrific because it's done against God. Now, that's the one that's most obvious and honestly, probably the one that if we were to be painfully honest, the one we care the least about, about what I'm going to go through. You don't really, okay, well, we offended God, we've sinned against God, what, okay, sorry, We don't really feel it, but the the reality is is that sin being against God means that we are in our choices, in our actions, in our affections, choosing so many things over the God who created us and the God who is worthy of everything else that we're giving to all these little things over here. That's part of the horror of sin, and Paul talks about this in Romans 1, that we trade the creator for the created. That's a horrific thing. And it's a, it's, well, no, I'm getting ahead of myself. It's a horrific thing to sin against God, to take down in our own attempts to assassinate his value and just give all of our worship to everything down here, to say something false about him. That is horrific. But then also sin is as bad as the Bible lays it out because sin is also against nature. Not only is sin against God, but it is also against our original nature. Although it feels quite different today, sin was not meant to be natural to us. Sin was not meant to be natural. It's not something that we human beings were originally meant to to carry and commit. Instead, we were meant for and created for beautiful perfection. The, oh, the dignity of what human beings were made for. You were made to be the most dignified piece of creation. And and, and so often we don't have a category for how sin really is serious simply because we don't have the category of what would have been if it never came. We don't have a category for how sin is horrific because we don't have enough categories for the beauty and perfection that we were made for. We're so used to corruption. We're so used to imperfection and weakness and rebellion. It's what feels most natural to us. And so we're, we're, we're used to it so that we can't even tap into the idea of what we were meant for, that we were meant for so much more. Listen to this from, from C.S. Lewis, who says better than everything I'm trying to say right now. The only way I can make real to myself the seriousness of sin is to remember that every sin is the distortion of an energy breathed into us. 
An energy which, if not thus distorted, would have blossomed into one of those holy acts whereof God did it and I did it are both true descriptions. We poison the wine as he decants it into us. We murder a melody he would play with us as the instrument. We caricature the self-portrait he would paint. Human beings were created to be the dignified representatives of God in a perfect world. We were meant to be a portrait painted by God that shines forth beauty in the world. We were meant to be dignified, and yet here we are groveling before sex and work and food and social circles. Do you see how far we've fallen? That we now, those who were meant to be dignified, image bearers of God, now find ourselves groveling before all these little things down here. That's horrific. The horror of sin is that it has taken God's image bearers and corrupted them away from the beauty, dignity, and purpose for which we were made. Sin is the inhumane way of being human. It's not what we were meant for. It grates against who we were meant to be. And because of that, it's horrific. And finally, one last reason why sin is as bad as the Bible lays it out to be and that these judgments call for. And this, is, this one is something I always like to bring up because it can really, I think, get to our secular moment. Sin is against reason. Sin is as bad as God says it is because it relegates us to foolishness. Straight foolishness. It is against reason. Listen to this from Karl Barth. Sin is disobedience, unbelief, and ingratitude to God, who gives himself to be known by man in order that we may be wise and live. It is thus a culpable relapse into self-contradiction, into incoherent, confused, and corrupt thought, speech, and action. Whether great or small, every confidence or trust or self-reliance on what we can say to ourselves when we reason apart from the word of God is stupid. Every attitude in which we think we can authoritatively tell ourselves what is true and good and beautiful is stupid. All thought and speech and action which we, we, we think we can and should based on this information is stupid. And this whole frame of mind is self-evidently and even more acutely stupid. Now, <laughs> Karl Barth was one of the most accomplished theologians of the 20th century. If he is searching all of his categories for language and finds that the best word to use is stupid, that's probably the right word. <laughs> he's, not just, he's not just throwing that word out there. He, he, he means it. Sin is stupid. It is against reason. It is foolish because it takes an offer of joy, purpose, and true life that can be received from the hand of the one who created us and instead just decides to cook up our own counterfeits through the use of these little things down here. These little idols, we take things again, like food, sex, work, and relationships, and we center our whole life around them, which when we see the limited nature of those things, we can see is just plain stupid. It is foolish. Sin is against God, against nature, and against reason. All of those together should begin to make our souls recoil at the thought of having any low views. 
how it deforms us, how it relegates us into foolishness, how it assassinates the one dignified holy being in the universe. We read chapters 8 through 11 and we often recoil at the sight of God's judgment in a text like this. But when we examine sin for what it is, friends, we should be repulsed not by sin's punishment, but by sin itself. That should give us a sense of revulsion. Sin is horrific, and God's warning is meant to show that. God's warning around sin are meant to be taken seriously. Now, what can we do today? Great, Josh, I, I kind of understand what's going on here. God is trying to blow these trumpets in order to warn the sinful world of what is coming and, and lure them out of the dangers of sin, and sin is really dangerous, but, but what am I supposed to do here today? Well, I, I have two applications for you, and then I'm, I'm out your way. I'm, I'm in my seat. First, if you are a Christian here today, you are called to hear these warnings for sin and against sin, and recognize that you, not anyone else, don't have anyone else in picture in your mind, you are designate, designated by God to be a witness to the gospel in your circles of influence. You are, you are meant to be a witness. You know, later actually in chapter 11, the scene shifts to show uh, the, what, what are two witnesses that proclaim God's warnings and his way out through Jesus Christ. And as we go through chapter 11, you begin to see that these witnesses did not actually fare very well. But we learn some important things that can give us some concrete actions that we should be taking in order to be a witness to our neighbors. Because we don't often know how to do that, right? It's like, okay, how do I be a witness? You know, later today, we're going to the Mariners game. I guarantee you what you're going to see is a man at the home plate entrance with a big old sign saying everyone's going to hell. Is that what you mean, Josh? Is that how we witness? No. No, that, that, that's not how we witness. Instead, what we see from Revelation 11 is that we witness to the gospel through personal sacrifice of our own well-being for the sake of sharing the gospel. One of the applications for you if you are a Christian here today is to feel the sense of warning that is for those who are outside of Christ and allow you to feel that, not just so that you can have your own sense of repentance, we'll get into that in a second, but also so that you can understand this is the fate of so many of our neighbors. When, when you go, if you go to the Mariners game, when you go there, this happens to me all the time, I go to a large event like that and there's 30, 35,000 people. And I think to myself, 97% of these people have no idea. No idea of who Jesus is, of where things are headed. And so often I'm just gripped by my own sense of I just feel ashamed because I, I would rather have a sense of affirmation of others and not be like that weird Christian. I'm more concerned about that than everything that we read here in Revelation. No, we should, we should be willing to step into the difficulty of being a witness, being willing, being willing to have a, sac a sacrificial spirit that will give up our, our own well-being, our own sense of affirmation, 
so that we can be someone who's witnessing to the way out of all of this stuff that we explore. You know, we, we here at ICON, we, one, of, one of the things we say is that we are sent on mission, which means it's not a question of if you are called, but to whom and where. And so many of us, when we hear that, we, we make this mistake that we, we often think that those to whom we are called are those to whom it is easiest to share the gospel. <laughs> so family members, maybe that's not your easiest. <laughs> but, but never co-workers, right? Never co-workers at a, at a secular tech company. Maybe. You being called to share the gospel with someone is never contingent on how easy that's going to be. We see that in the witness in Revelation. Witnessing to the truth of Jesus Christ will not always be easy. And if we're picking and choosing who we will introduce to the gospel by the filter of ease, we are being unfaithful. Second, one of the things we see about being a witness to the gospel, at least in Revelation, is something very interesting. Chapter 11 puts out this small but important detail about the witnesses it puts forward. And it says this, that they are wearing sackcloth. Now, you, you might hear that and think, well, okay, that's just strange. Maybe they were poor. No, sackcloth is the traditional biblical imagery for personal brokenness over sin and embodies personal repentance. Anytime you see someone wearing sackcloth in the Bible, it's because they are broken over their own sin. These are the witnesses of the gospel. And one of the most important things about them is not just that they are preaching repentance, but that they are repenting. This is where it can get really real for us. Because anytime we're called to be a witness, it's not just we got to save them, we got to do this. No, you need to embody repentance yourself. You know, I, I thought about this because this is in some ways a, a fire and brimstone sermon. <laughs> but do you know the problem with fire and brimstone preaching, or at least what it usually has been? Is not with its content, always. But rather, the problem with fire and brimstone preaching is that it often came from the mouth of someone who was also kissing their secretary. It came from a mind who was tearing down the dignity of others. The problem with fire and brimstone preaching for so long is not always its harsh content, but its hypocritical church. And Revelation 11 is meant to show us to witness to Jesus, you embody repentance. You personally repent. You have a sense of brokenness over your own sin. And so in witnessing to Jesus, it's never done from a place of superiority or perfection, but rather it's done. The way that it's done is through the opposite. So we recognize our own sin and we embody personal sorrow over our own sin. And for those of you who are Christians here today, I want to give you a very practical moment to help you identify what you need to repent of. And by the way, all of us are in here. We all need to repent. It just happens, okay? So, okay, good? Okay, you're great. You guys are super quiet. Anyways, what should we repent of? If we are to be witnesses to Jesus, what are we supposed to repent of? Well, I have a list here. Um, that I took from uh, Tim Keller, who kind of goes through and gives some identifying statements to help us see where we need to personally embody repentance. And the way this goes is he goes through, and the, the one line is that life only has meaning if, and then he says another sentence. And I just want, as I read through these, I want you to kind of self-identify. Where's the idolatry in your own heart that you need to repent of? 
Life only has meaning if I have power and influence over others. Life only has meaning if I am loved and respected by blank. Life only has meaning if I have this kind of pleasure experience, a, a particular quality of life. Life only has meaning if I am able to get mastery over my life in the area of blank. Life only has meaning if people are dependent on me and need me. Life only has meaning if someone is there to protect me and keep me safe. Life only has meaning if I am completely free from obligations or responsibilities to take care of someone. Life only has meaning if I am highly productive and getting a lot done. Life only has meaning if I am being recognized for my accomplishments and I am excelling in my work. Life only has meaning if I have a certain level of wealth, financial freedom, and very nice possessions. Life only has meaning if I am adhering to my religion's moral codes and accomplished in its activities. Life only has meaning if this one person is in my life and happy to be there and or happy with me. Life only has meaning if I feel I am totally independent of organized religion and am living by a self-made morality. A few more here. Life only has meaning if my race and culture is ascendant and recognized as superior. Life only has meaning if a particular social grouping or professional grouping lets me in. Life only has meaning if my children and or my parents are happy and happy with me. It only has meaning if Mr. And Mrs. or Mrs. Wright is in love with me. Life only has meaning if I am hurting in a problem. Only then do I feel worthy of love or able to deal with guilt. And then this last one, life only has meaning if my political or social cause is making progress and ascending in influence or power. Which one do you find yourself in? Maybe write it down. Because that's the area that you need to embody personal repentance in order to be a witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now finally, one last application. Trust in the mercy of Jesus Christ. All of the warnings here are not meant to just get your behavior straight again. It's meant to help you run to Jesus. And I, and I recognize that hearing a sermon about the wrath of God towards sin can be something that kind of gets us all worked up. But friends, the truth is, is that God has taken away our opportunity to complain about his wrath precisely because he's made a way of escape in Jesus Christ. We don't get to complain about his anger towards sin when he's given us a way out. And that's where we need to run. To feel, to read through Revelation 8 through 11, Feel the sense of horror that sin is and recognize that it has all been taken care of in Jesus Christ. Revelation 8 through 11 is not meant to just make you scared. It's meant to make you run to Jesus, to trust in him, to know that everything that God pronounces as judgment, God has taken within himself, that God has entered under his own sentence the wrath of God was lodged within God's own self. And that is our hope. That is our joy. And even in many ways, our fuel 
as we continue on in this road of repentance. And so don't you dare hear this sermon and just be afraid. Just be warned. No, remember the way that he has provided in his son, Jesus Christ. Reflect on that, feel that. Feel the sense of horror and then feel the sense of comfort in Jesus Christ. He's giving you all the grace you need, friend. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you love us enough to make us aware of, of what comes when we live life apart from you. And, and it is difficult to hear and even more difficult to accept sometimes. And that's why we need your mercy and your power. God, whatever it is, whatever through that list of idolatry or whatever else, God, would you, would you help us to feel the sense of conviction toward our sin and not, not make it small anymore, but to agree with you that it is, it is horrific. What we've done to you, to ourselves, and to others God, it should pain our conscience. But in that pain, would you, would you show us the sweet balm of the mercy of Jesus Christ? That every bit of pain we feel toward our sin, it's just, God, it's just overcome by the mercy that you've given us in Christ. And so as we respond here in a few and as we sing, God, would you refresh our spirits with your sense of grace? Give us a sense of sobriety, yes, but also give us joy and grace. Did you do that in us by your spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching to a time of response. While we recognize it may be hard to capture that as you listen online, we encourage you to take a moment to reflect on and respond to what the Spirit might be telling you in response to what you've heard. For more resources and to find out how you can join with us in gathering on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. And as we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.